Hi, all. Welcome to a special episode of Nutrition Pearls, the podcast. And Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI podcast. The official podcast of the Council for Pediatric Nutrition Professionals, or CPNP. And the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASP again. I'm your host, Jen Smith, Pediatric GI Dietitian at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Joining me today is... I'm your other host, Peter Liu, a pediatric gastroenterologist also at Nationwide Children's Hospital. We are so, so excited to bring you the first of... It's got to be many, many future Tons. collaborative episodes from both the Nutrition Pearls and the Bell Sound podcast. Okay, so Jen, it has now been about six months since you guys started. Um, you've had some incredible guests and topics since then. How has it been going with the Nutrition Pearls podcast? Yeah, Peter. So for those who don't know, we started Nutrition Pearls, the podcast, with much support from our CPNP executive committee and our friends at Bow Sounds um, about six months ago now, I think. Yeah, you said that. So we have released a couple clinical episodes, a few episodes discussing topics related to CPNP, and a couple bonus episodes. So the learning curve has been like super steep, and we're really still learning, and it's been a ton of fun. We've gotten a lot of really great and positive feedback, which is making like the time and effort really worth it. And we've had a lot of success getting experts in our field as guests. So we're really thankful to them. And we have a lot of exciting episodes in the pipeline. So if you don't already follow the show, consider following it so you know when they're available. Awesome. I mean, I, as early, early listeners of the Balasans podcast know, in the very beginning, we were a mess. Everything <laughs> <I'm sure not. laughs> was made on GarageBand. We had no idea how to like equalize audio, make the levels sound okay. Everything was super quiet. People would be like, oh, we love your podcast, but I have to crank the volume up all the way to oh, hear yeah. anything. I'm like, oh, so Google was our friend. But but no, you guys are doing such an awesome job. Thanks. I think the technology has advanced <laughs> since you guys started and you guys have taught us a lot of stuff. So oh, no, yeah, we no, really no. You are appreciative. Are, you guys are great. We also have something joint special planned for the upcoming NASPGAN annual meeting, which at the time of the release of this episode will be next week. I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. It's coming up too soon. So what do we have planned? So we have a booth-ish. We'll be right beside each other. We're around a pillar, yes. right? So we'll be kind of all there around a pillar. We have some freebies to give away, so please stop by. We're planning on hopefully maybe recording some fun reels. So if nice. you like that kind of thing, mm -hmm. we're going to entice you with some freebies, I think. So come check us out. It'll be Thursday, uh, right after the Baby Shark Tank. So you should definitely go there and then go to the Naspigan reception with posters and open bar and drinks. Mm -hmm. And then check out our booth, get mm -hmm. free stuff. Mm -hmm. Talk to us. Yeah. So... San Diego. Mm -hmm. We're both going pretty soon. Mm -hmm. I heard. So you've never been to California? I have never been to California. Oh my gosh. So we were supposed to go to, you know, when Naspigan was supposed to be in San Diego the yeah. last time, the pandemic. And I was extremely excited. And then it got canceled. And so when I heard it was going back, I was like, yes, I have yeah, definitely got to go. go. Yeah. I'm going to throw out a potentially controversial statement. But I think of the 50 states in the United States, California is the most beautiful state. Is that because you were born there? Uh, so I wasn't born there, but I did oh, grow up okay. there. All right. I was actually born in Ohio. Oh, really? I know. And then wow. I moved to California when I was one. So I don't remember anything about Ohio. I mean, I but could see that, you know, the coast and 
all of that. I feel like, so uh, obviously, you know, Hawaii is beautiful. There's so many beautiful states, but California has, you know, coasts, mountains, deserts, all different climate, right? Yeah. I mean, like totally different uh, than the humidity we have here right now. Yeah. But it's expensive. Ohio's has its own positives too. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so what are you going to do in San Diego? So I don't know. I've been tossing a lot of stuff around. Um, I have a family member that works at the San Diego Zoo. So maybe I feel like I don't have enough time really to do that well, but maybe mm-hmm. could do that. And then um, I would love to see some sea lions. So yeah. like maybe a little trip up to La Jolla. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. There's so many things beautiful. around there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was a video recently about the sea lions attacking someone who got too close. So I just wouldn't don't get, get too close. close. No, yeah. I would from you afar. respect their space. Yeah. But La Jolla is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you should definitely go there. I don't go around animals that are in the wild. (laughs) Provoking them. I tell my children, like, that cat could have fleas or it could be feral. Like, so don't worry. I will not get close (laughs) to those sea lions. (laughs) Oh, man. But, and also, you know, so the hotel is right on the water next to the convention center. Right in the bay, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marina? I don't know. Marina, yeah. Something. But it's in the Gaslamp District, so lots of restaurants and bars right there, walking distance. It'll be great. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great location. We are so excited to see people and also to meet people at Thursday's booth thing. Yes. Please stop by. And uh, any point in time, just if you see us, say hi. Yes, definitely. So, okay. What is our topic? Okay. Today, we are planning on talking about the dietary treatment of irritable bowel syndrome in mm-hmm. children, specifically about the low FODMAP diet. Yeah. So something that is... uh has been and is a hot topic yep. in our GI, especially our GI motility world. And not only are we bringing you the first joint episode, but also two of our best guests ever. Yeah, definitely. Two great people. And maybe the only two worthy of our inaugural joint episode. That's yeah. Bruno Champatazzi and Kirsten Jones. Yep. So Bruno, Dr. Champatazzi, he's a pediatric neurogastroenterologist, <clears throat> modalist, who recently completed being the inaugural director of the Motility Center at Texas Children's Hospital. And as many of you know, earlier this summer, he moved to Duke, where he's a professor of pediatrics and also the division chief there. And I'm excited to introduce our dietitian guest. Kirsten Jones is a registered dietitian and board certified specialist in pediatric nutrition who specializes in pediatric GI here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She has a special interest in disorders of the gut-brain interaction, or DGBI, and the use of the low FODMAP diet for IBS, as well as the prevention of malnutrition in these patients. She serves as the dietitian representative on NASPIGAN's Neurogastroenterology and Motility Committee, and I've had the honor of working with Kirsten for many years, and I can't say enough great things about her. She is awesome. Yeah. And on to the show. On to the show. All right. So Bruno, Kirsten, thank you both so much for joining the very first collaborative Bowel Sounds and Nutrition Pearls podcast. We're so excited. I know. I've been waiting for this for a long yes. time since we started. I'm thank so you guys excited. for having us. I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to be here and it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Super exciting. Honestly, like even early on in Bowel Sounds, we wanted to have you two specifically come on, but I'm glad we waited. Yes. And I was going to steal Kirsten from you. I know. And just do an episode of Nutrition Pearls. And then with I Kirsten. said, no, 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 no. Yep. We did it. We got to do this together. This is better. Yes. So much better. It's That's great. kind of you. You probably should have done that, actually. No. This is the way it should be. Dietitians yes. That's for sure. really lead, lead the way in this. And I'm not kidding by that. It's true. But, you know, 
you're also pretty great. So oh, that's, yes. that's kind of you, on, Peter. So. That's kind of you. So, okay. As we always start on ballast sounds, we do have a question that I know everybody hates, but we got to ask you. <laughs> Kirsten, let's start with you. Okay. <laughs> How would you describe yourself in one sentence? Um, well, I am first and foremost a mother. I have two little kids, a boy and a girl. So I do a lot of things that are kid friendly, but I mm-hmm. do a lot of baking. So if I'm not at work, you will find me in the kitchen experimenting with baked goods and then bringing them in and making everybody eat them. And then my family is a really, we're big fans of like animals. We're animal nerds. So um, awesome. yeah, any, any sort of animals we love. So animal lover, fond lover of ice cream, all those things. There's many sentences, but uh, yeah, I know. I'm a not- mom who bakes and likes ice cream. Still. And, animals. and animals. And animals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. One thing I'm not is uh, short-winded. So <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> well, it works out. That's pretty good for a podcast. Yeah. So. All right, Bruno, how would you describe yourself? I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to do much better in terms of the number of sentences, but, but let me try. I'm, I'm a super fortunate husband. I'm a son to Peruvian immigrants, hmm. a father to three. And professionally, I am a pediatric gastroenterologist and physician scientist who loves neurogastroenterology, so don't hold that against me. And just recently, I took on a division chief position, actually, at uh, Duke, and I'm really excited about that. Congratulations. Congratulations, definitely. Very long sentence, but but that's awesome. But yes, so tell us about that. So that just happened, maybe, I think now a couple weeks ago, right? That you started there? That's right. Yeah. Awesome. About uh, going on about two weeks now. Yes. I mean, I think when we all heard that you're taking the chief position, we are all so happy for you. You're going to do an awesome job. How's it going so far? It's going great. Thank you for saying that, Peter. I actually feel super proud to be joining that group. Uh, This is a a crew that even though they're medium-sized, they are doing really special things, Mm -hmm. liver transplant, small bowel transplant, things of that nature that I am just really enjoying and hoping to be a part of that. Yeah. That's fantastic. So as a uh, recent transplant in Durham, North Carolina, what do you think? What is the thing that we should do when we eventually come to visit you? Yeah. Do you know that yet? I'm, I'm learning. So I, I'm probably not 100% qualified to answer that question, but I can tell you what I've explored a little mm-hmm. bit so far. First of all, the folks are super friendly. You all probably know that already, but I'm coming from Houston where folks are already pretty friendly and going to North Carolina, I, I feel like the friendliness level went even higher somehow. So I'm, I'm really, I've been really impressed and that's been a great, great thing to see. In terms of places to visit, I, I think uh, food wise, there are a lot of options there. So far, I have checked out uh, a Mexican place called La Vaquita, okay. which is in like mid Durham. And, you know, you would look at it and you, you would easily pass by it, but it's like, one of the most popular Those are usually the gems. places. It's like mm-hmm. a total gem, authentic Mexican food. And then the other place that we went to was uh, the rooftop of the Durham Hotel. And that is, Durham's not the biggest city, but it's a nice view of the city, some small tapas type meals and some nice uh, drinks. So it's, it was, it's so far, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. And then you're in town for a conference. I'm sure Peter can yeah. talk about. Yeah. And so Kirsten, while Bruno's in town, since you are from Columbus, where do you think he, if he has some spare time, should check out? 
Yeah. So like I said before, my family's into animals, food, all those things. Um, something that we are obsessed with and it's local is Jenny's. Yes. So Jenny's ice cream. I know they've mm. expanded past Columbus mm-hmm. and they're now all over the United States, but we are totally obsessed with Jenny's. Mm-hmm. So they always have fun, unique flavors and different spins on things. And then I think we have a lot of great local coffee shops. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of things beyond kid-friendly things because <laughs> all I do are, it's like catered to a one and a three and a half year old. So <laughs> we do a lot of zoo trips. Um, yeah. So that's fun too. But if anybody wants to hit up the zoo, I think we have a great one. We do have a great. So, Bruno, have you have you had Jenny's? I have not had Jenny's. Oh, oh you have to go. It's just gone to the top of the list. We yeah, literally yeah. could do that right after this. Yeah, it's, it's so walking great. distance Let's, from your hotel. Let's do it. It's yes. so good. No, thank you. And you that's, have to that's great. try a bunch of flavors. Yes. when you're there, like get the little get samples and uh-huh. try a bunch. I feel like the etiquette is you can. I I I feel guilty if I ask for more than three samples. Yeah. But uh, you should definitely like three do three. Is appropriate. Yeah, three uh-huh. good. I agree. I usually yeah. tell out of town guests like just do three, and then you order what you really want. Yeah, which should probably be one of brown berry crisp oh, or yeah. brown butter almond brittle. No, what? No, no, no. Oh. Buckeye. I okay, know they call okay. it salted peanut butter with dark chocolate flecks. Now it's Buckeye, mm, and it's okay. so good. That's my favorite one. Those are the three for you to try. It doesn't yeah. sound like there's anything like vanilla there. Right? Oh, there I mean, is uh, like a is, vanilla bean. Yeah, very... there's a vanilla bean. And there's the darkest chocolate. You should mm-hmm. be more adventurous than just Oh, no, no, no. I'm bean. going to be. But their vanilla just trying to... is really good. <laughs> I think the blueberry <laughs> lemon is really pretty good, too. Is that yeah. what they call it? I can't remember. They do. It's the yeah, blueberry lemon really parfait. Yeah. I told you, we're Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All the we actually just missed the recent um, release. And so I found it online. We ordered a few bites online. <laughs> there was a... There was a connoisseurs in our family. There was a Ted Lasso one. Um, I've heard. Ooh, great. Uh, short... Was it? Biscuits with, Biscuits the, with boss. the boss. It was so good. It's I so good. I Ted Lasso and I knew it. That's really oh, yeah. Sad. Yeah. I think you uh, I'm an ice cream loving dietitian. You'll have to I say, say no more. I'm like craving this place it's now. It's so, <laughs> so good. We'll go. Let's Jenny's go. ice cream. Yep. That's great. Yeah. All right. I guess we should probably talk about our topic. Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So for both of you, how did you get interested in nutrition and also disorders of gut brain interaction like the low FODMAP diet that we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So I first decided I wanted to be a dietitian. I was actually in high school. Nice. Um, my mom is and well, was in the healthcare field. Now she watches my kiddos, um, <laughs> which I'm super grateful for. But she was in the healthcare field and she saw me get into really into this school project about nutrition. And she was like, you know, you can make that into a career. And I was kind of like, yeah, right. No, you can't. So she set up a shadow day. And then I fell in love with it. I've always loved working with kids. So it just kind of seemed like a great fit. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to do an internship rotation here in the PICU. So during my internship at Ohio State, which is where I got matched after college, um, I went to college back in Virginia where I was from. Uh, so that's how I landed in Ohio and then um, did a round um, in the PICU here. And I just kind of fell in love with nutrition for kids even more than I thought I would be. I started contingent here after and then really fell in love with GI because you can't really deny the relationship with nutrition and GI. Definitely. I feel like in other areas, maybe it's a stretch um, for not to dietitians, but maybe you can't get the buy-in from providers as much. But I feel like with with GI, there's no mistaking that there's a, a very um, like intimate relationship with like nutrition and how it's related to it. So that's how I got into that. And as far as disorders of brain gut interaction specifically, I also have IBS. So I feel like selfishly <laughs> I got interested into it. Um, so in college, I kind of, I was diagnosed with IBS. And mm-hmm. so 
I feel like with that stress of college, you also um, comes that. So I don't know. I just kind of fell into it and have been really interested ever since. Uh, so Bruno, what about you? Yeah. For me, when, during training, I saw that disorders of gut-brain interaction or DGBI were just so prevalent. Mm-hmm. And we did not have a lot of evidence or really clear-cut ways to, to help these kids. And one of those areas that kids will tell you, you know, when I eat certain foods, it hurts or it exacerbates my symptoms in some way. And I, I just wanted to learn more about that. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know how we can help kids better uh, within this area of diet and nutrition because it's an everyday experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're eating every day and sometimes really struggling with that. And so that's how I got into that this area in general, just when I saw that there was a dearth of, of knowledge. And then with respect to FODMAP, I was just really lucky in the sense that after fellowship, when trying to look for answers and questions, that was just coming out, you know, mm-hmm. that acronym mm-hmm. from the Monash University group. Um, and it just seemed to make sense to me because it was very familiar, and I think we all are, with lactose intolerance, kind of some of those themes and ideas and it, it resonated with me and I just wanted to kind of learn more about it at that point. That's great. So building on that, you you mentioned the low FODMAP diet, which is what our episode is about. But for those who out there who may not be as familiar with that acronym, can you tell us what the low FODMAP diet is? Uh, FODMAP is an acronym, again, uh, by the, the group in Monash University. It stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And so Taken together, these are carbohydrates that are readily fermentable if they're if they're malabsorbed, and they can go into the colon. And there are physiologic effects, uh, most notably, for example, increased gas production within the colon, and also increased osmotic activity um, in the small bowel. And those physiologic effects and the fermentation that occurs by the gut microbiome are thought to to somehow then lead to increasing symptoms in certain children with DGBI. Yeah. Kirsten, anything to add? <laughs> <laughs> that was a... Yeah, no, I, I think I, I mean, I would agree with all of those things. I always joke with our patients or try to joke a little bit. Like the reason we have an acronym is because no one wants to say that mouthful oh, yeah. over and over again. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, and then I always make a point to tell our patients to, you know, these aren't bad foods. Mm -hmm. These aren't negative foods. Cause I feel like immediately families want to jump and say like, okay, well, which ones are the bad ones? What should we avoid? And I'm like, whoa, 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 like pump the brakes. There are no bad foods. Like apples are on there. Like Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be like an apple a day. keeps the doctor away. Right. But like if you are a child's IBS, maybe you're eating too many apples and you're coming to the GI doctor with problems. So yeah, I think just really explaining. There's a lot of like scientific terms in the FODMAP world. So I think getting down to like a baseline level is, is as important as um, it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're talking about the diet specifically, that's where there are, there are actually three phases to this diet. There's that initial restriction phase that folks recommend different lengths, but anywhere from four to eight weeks in which you're really trying to comprehensively restrict uh, these FODMAPs from your diet. And then there's supposed to be, and unfortunately, this is an area where you kind of get to um, a little bit of a lack of evidence. There's supposed to be a reintroduction phase, mm-hmm. and that also can be several weeks long, in which you're, the, the child is just being exposed to these individual FODMAPs, for example, lactose-containing or fructan-containing or galactan-containing foods to see if that FODMAP specifically actually is something that he or she should avoid. And then there's that third phase where it's kind of the really 
big personalization phase where uh, now knowing the reintroduction and the challenges, what can that child actually continue to eat? And if it sounds complicated, there's a reason for that. It, it is. And, and <laughs> yeah. you really encourage working with a registered dietitian uh, throughout all this. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah. I think even so before diving into some of the nuances about this diet, a question for either one of you. I mean, what kind of evidence do we have in the literature for its use in children? I know a lot of it was published by you, Bruno. Our guest, but, yeah, uh, right? but tell us <laughs> about it. What's, what's out there? Like, what do we know? Compared to what's out there for adult IBS, it, the evidence is still pretty scant or scar, uh, you know, it's a little sparse. Mm-hmm. So there are two uncontrolled studies which have taken a look at the uh, low FODMAP diet in kids with DGBI, generally kids with IBS. And the level of improvement in these uncontrolled studies can be anywhere from 50 to 79%. In terms of the randomized controlled trials, there are three of them that are out there. Two of them uh, have compared the low FODMAP diet to diets that have higher FODMAP content. One of the ones that we did was a very short-term one, and we ended up seeing that the low FODMAP diet was superior to what we called the typical American childhood diet. The second one that happened that occurred in Turkey actually lasted for several weeks, and they ended up seeing that it, the low FODMAP diet was also helpful in terms of decreasing symptoms compared to the other comparison diet. A third study actually was negative, um, and that was a low FODMAP diet compared to what's the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence mm-hmm. or the UK diet, and that actually showed that there was no difference between between the two. And Overall, the general direction, even though it's a lot less uh, robust, the evidence is kind of paralleling the much more robust adult evidence in which they also are seeing that when you compare a low FODMAP diet against diets that have higher FODMAP content, that the low FODMAP diet tends to win. When you try to compare it to this nice diet, it doesn't really stand out quite as much. Hmm. And overall, I I think this evidence is there, but I think to be balanced – Check out the the recent Espigan position statement that came out in JPGN just a couple months ago, in which they really you know point out that the evidence is not super strong just yet, and so you know should not be routinely uh, recommending a low FODMAP diet for for all the kids that we're seeing. Yeah, very interesting. So Kirsten, here, I mean, you led a study that uh, we have presented but haven't published yet. Yeah. What did you find? Yeah. So um, we found that. Families felt those who had success on it would recommend it, but they also, the same families felt that it was difficult to do. Right. So it kind of just confirmed our suspicions. This can be a really big undertaking for families. And then I also wanted to even circle back to a point where, that um, Bruno was making. Nutrition research is so difficult mm. to do. And I mm-hmm. feel like it's something that's not widely known. As dietitians. we, I feel like, are always getting people asking us questions like, what about this? I read about this somewhere. I read about this. And it's like, well, even if it's from a credible institution or a credible journal, it's still so hard to do. You still have to like trust that that family understood their education. And unless you're providing them with their food and then you have to trust that they're going home and eating the exact food and then only that food that you're providing them, you really have no idea. And your trust is just in your patients at that point. And and your study is in the hands of your patients at that point. So it's so difficult to get really great results um, with nutrition research. So I think that's a really standout point. <laughs> it's a good point. And, and the other part to it is, you know, for example, if you have the low FODMAP diet, what are you comparing it to? Mm-hmm. And for how long are you doing it? Yeah. Um, and so those those are some of the challenges with this type of research. And hopefully the, the data will continue to get robust and 
much smarter people than I will be studying this and trying to figure this out. But yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. I think too, because it is a challenging diet and there's a lot of things that you have to think about. Kirsten, who do you think is the ideal patient for the low FODMAP diet? Because I think that is an important to be choosy. So what do you think if you had to pick that perfect patient, what yeah. would be some of the criteria? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've thought about this a lot. So really somebody who has an interest in in diet therapy. So I don't think it's great to say like, hey, you should do this diet to somebody who does who's blatantly either said, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do any diet therapy or um, so I think you have to gauge that interest first. Like, are they interested in diet therapy at all? Um, what is their baseline diet like? Where are they getting their food from? Where do what access do they have to grocery stores? Um, and then which grocery stores are there? Because we all know different grocery stores carry different products. Do they get foods provided to them through their daycares or schools? That's really important because then it's really breakfast and or lunch are out of the family's control. So you can't really tell them to eliminate something from the diet just for dinner because that that won't really help them in the long run. So finding other tweaks are important. I also find it difficult if the patient has a history of being vegan or vegetarian, especially vegan, though, just because you're eliminating so many of their protein sources. Their plant proteins. Yeah, those plant protein sources um, are definitely uh, dwindled um, when you tell them to do the low FODMAP diet. And then if they have any um, history of disordered eating, I really, that's a huge red flag for me. I don't, I really don't recommend it at all. I don't want it to trigger any, anything from their past at that point. Yeah. Bruno, what do you think? Anything to add? Yeah, I, I, you you hit a ton there, and I, I completely agree. I try to look at these factors in three different buckets. One one is the, and they're all very important, one is the family and the social aspect, and you, you're really hitting on this. A lot of our kids, about 20%, if you do look at the studies, have food insecurity. <laughs> and there's not data specific to the low FODMAP diet, but with the gluten-free diet, in which there's some overlap, they actually showed that during the pandemic, families that were recommended at least one individual within the family to start a gluten-free diet, there was an increased risk for actually food insecurity mm-hmm. occurring in that mm-hmm. family. So we have to be very careful. And so I'm just, I completely agree with with Kirsten on like the programs and where where is the food coming from and and what are the mean what are the means. I think that's one of the things you need to gauge. The, another factor is within your own clinical practice. I think the second area is. What are the health edu- uh, what are the nutrition education resources that you have available to provide that family? And I think I've, we've already mentioned, um, you know, really recommend working with a registered dietitian. And the reason for that is that is when you take a look at the information that's out there on the internet, uh, even food lists that are available that from really reputable academic centers, and there's a lot of inconsistencies mm-hmm. out there, unfortunately, that our families are seeing, that parents are seeing, and so. You know, really having somebody who can really personalize this diet is, I think, is very important. And then that that third factor area, and, I, and Kirsten, you hit it, is individual factors. So if somebody's malnourished going into it, it's you know there are reports in adults where that can be an issue in which you have increased weight loss. Um, if there are already a lot of avoidant or restrictive eating behaviors, you know, someone who's already restricting quite a bit you know, when you're seeing them for the first time may not be someone that you want to recommend um, a low FODMAP diet for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With the malnutrition part, I mean, I feel like it can just snowball from there. So if somebody comes, you know, with IBS and malnutrition, I always say like, let's focus on the malnutrition piece Mm -hmm. first. Um, I really want to like rehab their weight first. And then, you know, as long as that weight loss wasn't like intentional, then we can start more of like that elimination phase at that point. 
Yeah, just to add a little bit too. I mean, some of the questions I think the field has been asking, answering is, you know, at first it was thought that this diet would be the best for kids with diarrhea, for example, IBS mm-hmm. with diarrhea. And really a lot of data, both in kids and adults, suggests that no, it doesn't really matter whether you have constipation or diarrhea. You, you know, this could potentially be a good diet for them. That's the, a good point. Yeah. The other is, um, you know, sometimes folks feel like, uh, because it's DGBI, sometimes there can be psych- psychosocial or increased depression, anxiety, some of those factors. In a in a study that was um, we're, we're we're looking forward to coming out and and Jay and actually Rachel Ten- Tenenbaum, who is a, a psychology uh, who did a, a psychologist who did some additional training at Texas Children's, took a look at factors that seemed to improve adherence, and those did not influence at all whether mm-hmm. or not someone actually were, was able to adhere to the diet or not. Um, one factor that did seem to stand out in terms of increasing the likelihood of adherence was actually having a relatively higher uh, quality of life compared to others. And so we're still trying to figure that out. But perhaps for those patients that are really, really suffering quite a bit and it's really affecting their quality of life significantly, this may not be the best diet um, in terms of adherence for for that group as well. When you're thinking about this diet for a patient and you're just starting to work them up like you just met them, what types of things do you think should be done before we think about the low FODMAP diet? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, th- I think the entire field of neurogastroenterology is trying to figure yeah, that's sure. like the multi-million dollar question. I think Miguel Saps and others have, have literally asked that. I would say that you would follow your clinical judgment in terms of trying to do the evaluation that you feel is most mm-hmm. appropriate in terms of diagnostic evaluations and taking local factors into account. So, for example, is there are you in an area that has a lot of parasitic infections? You should be testing for that. Are you in an area that has, for example, a lot of allergies? Or you know, you, you need to you need to dot the i's and cross the t's as you feel comfortable uh, doing as a as a gastroenterologist. One of the tests that used to be in favor and people were very excited about was that that concept of doing breath testing. So folks would say, hey, I can I can figure out which FODMAP uh, I should avoid uh, by doing breath testing, whether a lactose breath test or fructose breath test and things like that. And most of the studies actually, mainly from a national university, have shown that that's not really that helpful. Interestingly enough, folks that even don't test abnormal on these individual mm-hmm. carbohydrate-specific tests they can still actually benefit uh, sometimes from avoiding these carbohydrates. And if you think about it, it can be because it's a little artificial, right? You're just giving this one high-dose single carbohydrate as opposed to, you know, eating a full, more regular, typical type of meal. Sure. And so it's not a a perfect, these aren't perfect tests. So from my perspective, you don't need to do anything in addition to what you would typically do when you're seeing somebody with DGBI before, before you start thinking about this diet. So building upon something that you guys both said earlier, so you mentioned how, well, even here, like back in the day, we used to just throw out a website on the AVS and say, hey, read about the diet and go do it. <laughs> but uh, I did, that's not me, but some of my, some of our colleagues, uh, maybe me. But, um, but now, of course, like I think we all recognize the necessity of having a dietitian talk to the family, do the education, guide their treatment. So Kirsten, like for you, when we... We call you, I feel like, all the time for low FODMAP diet initiation. What does that initial teaching kind of look like? Yeah, so it's usually, I would say, depending on the family and how many questions they mm-hmm. have and how many, much prior knowledge they have. Some families, you know, we get the referral and then we schedule a little further out. And then sometimes we do this on the fly in clinic um, nationwide. So it kind of just depends, like, I would say 30 to 60 minutes, maybe 45 being that sweet spot. But it can be a longer visit. 
we go through a lot with the family. We have our food lists, which, like I said before, do not say good and bad. They say um, like food allowed and then food to temporarily avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have them categorized by different food groups for the family. Um, We go through all of that. We go through their dietary recall so we know which of those to focus on as we're um, walking through the education. Or if we know at that point if we need to switch gears completely and say like, whoa, like full stop, you're a really picky eater and all you eat are like high FODMAP foods. And then we would basically dwindle your diet down to nothing. So we have to like switch our approach maybe. We also, we have a lot of resources. We actually give them like where to go for like trustworthy research um, so that they know not necessarily like which ones to avoid, which ones to go to. It, we always tell them they can call us. We have a FODMAP friendly my plate that I made that we give them. So if they need like a quick and easy meal, they can just look at it and pick something that's low FODMAP from each group. Oh gosh, we like go through label reading. We have like a few recipes. We have a list of breakfast, lunch, dinner ideas, snack ideas, product list ideas. So we try to really set them up for success. And then we have not done like a traditional follow-up quite yet, just because we were worried. We initially were thinking like, hey, let's, you know, do the introduction and then maybe bring them back for the like the reintroduction phase. But we were worried they would get lost to follow-up and then they would be just forever on the yeah, low FODMAP diet. So yeah, yeah, which we don't want. So we really, really go over, you know, I, we've recently said like two to three weeks, honestly. And I always say max of six because I really don't want kids to go beyond that. But mm-hmm. um, so we we provide them with a whole packet of information. It can be a lot. I always tell families, you know, if you get home and in a few weeks when you're doing this reintroduction and you don't remember what I said, give me a call because <laughs> um, it can just be a lot to remember. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, that is so comprehensive. Can I hope you can share some of those resources <laughs> because that's that sounds terrific. And just to add on really quickly. Hopefully the kids have gotten better, right, before they do the reintroduction diet. If if there's been no improvement whatsoever, right, with the full restriction, then then they can come off, actually. Yeah. They don't need to, to go through the rest of the phases. I always say, you know, if it didn't help you to remove it from your diet, it's not going to hurt you to put it back. Yeah. So Good I always point. say that to all of my patients, um, just to let them know, like, the, again, these are not bad foods we're removing. I really just try to harp on that mm-hmm. constantly during my first meeting with the family. What do you think is the most challenging for patient implementation? Like, what do you think patients have the most trouble with when they're trying to have success using this diet? I would say the sneakiest ingredients are probably like onions, garlic, because a lot of people don't think about the powders and and things like their seasonings that they use so I would say that those are probably the sneakier ingredients, but I would say if they're a lover of dairy, like I love ice cream, I did the low FODMAP diet once upon a time um, for myself, and that was a hard one to eliminate for me. Um, we're big milk drinkers in our family, and so I think that one's hard, but I think confusion-wise, maybe for mm-hmm. families, the gluten aspect is really confusing because... You know, I always talk about with the families, like gluten is the protein, but carb, you know, the um, FODMAPs are the carbohydrate. I always say like they're friends. They like to hang out together. (laughs) They're in similar foods, but they're not the same thing. Like don't go out searching just for all gluten-free products because now we know like a lot of gluten-free products are made with some FODMAP unfriendly, like some high FODMAP foods. Mm. So I, I try not to 
tell them just go for the gluten-free options. But there is like that misunderstanding that the low FODMAP diet is a gluten-free diet, which yes, but no (laughs) at the same time. Right. Right. That's a great, great point. I think one of the areas that I think some folks um, have some difficulty with is to your point about condiments, you know, they're, they're having chicken, but they've breaded it. Or yes. you know, they've they've done something to to it to then that makes it that adds the the high FODMAP uh, content to it. And do you think that because we've been using this diet for so long that what people may struggle with, we're hopefully identifying when we meet with them and do like that interview and the intake and before we even get into things? Because I feel like I'm doing that. You know, we're modifying our recommendations, so it may not be traditional FODMAP for everyone that it's more of a tailored approach to what we think. I think I've said this before, but like the least amount of restriction for the most amount of benefit. So yeah, we definitely do that. We've, I feel like we've gotten into a lot of like modified low FODMAP and just a great area for research. I know. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're, we're really interested in that aspect of it and how we can personalize it a little more and make it not only better results for the family, but easier for them to do. Yeah. Like, why even go over half of these ingredients and in foods if they aren't even, one, foods the kiddo eats in the first place, yeah. or if we don't really think that's like the big culprit sure. for them specifically. Yeah, I mean, that you're really hitting on that that concept that I think we're familiar with in IB, the IBD world, you know, where it's like top-down or bottom up. Mm-hmm. And in this case, top down is, you know, you're, you're eliminating everything, you know, you're getting rid of all the FODMAPs from your diet or restricting them, sorry. Whereas the bottom up is a very personalized, which is really neat approach to, you know, maybe just selecting the ones that you're seeing in the diet, or some folks advocate, you know, just making sure, making sure you, you do that, but at least in addition, still adding and eliminating fructans, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, found in wheat and onions to, um, to Kirsten's point, because that tends to be the quote unquote worst FODMAP in terms of causing symptoms. So since we're talking about like a modified low FODMAP diet, one of the questions that Jen wrote was about the Monash University's FODMAP gentle approach. I don't know what that is. What is that? Is that kind of like a modified low FODMAP diet? Yeah. I've also heard it called like FODMAP light, Mm, um, where they focus on just a few of the, of the items. Uh, Um, and so it's not that like broad restriction. Pretty yeah. Much. Yeah. I feel um, like the foods that are included in, in that FODMAP gentle FODMAP light that like, they had like a blog about it. Those are the ones people talk about. Oh that, yeah. Hmm. So they're the, the very high suspicion type ones. Yeah, like dairy. The, what we've all been talking about, right? Lactose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fructans, onions, garlic, yeah. like wheat type things. So and some of the fruits and vegetables that are yeah. just high. For yeah. sure. Yeah. You're definitely hitting on it. It's, it's, these 15 items that mm-hmm. the Monash group have identified and said, you know, these are the ones to try to avoid. And the hope is, and I completely get it, is they want to make it pediatric friendly. Mm-hmm. They want to make it less restrictive. They want to make it something that's easier to educate about. And I, I love all those ideas. Uh, we took a quick look um, at uh, some of the those high FODMAP foods that kids in Houston are eating, uh, kids with DGBI. And when we lined it up with the FODMAP gentle diet just to see, well, how many of these high FODMAP foods are th- that these kids are eating would actually be eliminated by the FODMAP gentle diet? It was actually a lot. It was 81% of the foods would actually be uh, removed so or restricted. So 
I think that's promising. Mm-hmm. The and I you hit it on the head, Jen. We don't have the research on it just yet in terms of you know will it work. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of folks that are really hopeful about it and actually yeah. already using it. Um, so this is one of those you know balances. You know, like maybe lack of evidence, but it may be a little bit more practical to use as compared to a full low FODMAP diet. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you mentioned some of the timeline stuff, Kristen. You said you know at least a couple of weeks, no more than six weeks. Bruno, do you have that same? Is that is that a similar timeline? And and then Kristen, you can you know after Bruno says, you can say more about that kind of reintroduction phase. But yeah, I, I think you had mentioned that you were go- you you all were going down to two to three weeks, mm-hmm. which is interesting yeah. because and there's a current uh, trial at uh, Baylor College of Medicine that's being led by Dr. Rona Levy and and Rob Schulman, and there was a lot of discussion. You know how how long should that full restriction phase be? And there was a lot of concern, actually, if you get beyond three weeks, that the uh, amount of adherence would really go down. Mm-hmm. So really, we kind of in that same ballpark, I think, just from a practical standpoint, it's, mm-hmm. two, it's kind of two to three weeks. Ideally, it would be longer, but I think we're, we're just trying to be realistic and pragmatic. If you take a look at some of the, the studies in terms of how long does it take you know, for you to really go down and really start improving your symptoms, our study, which was just a really short couple of days, you know, within two to three days, you know, you are starting to see mm-hmm. some improvement. But um, with longer, longer time frames that the Monash group show that you're probably looking at about a week and a half or so before you're really hitting maximal improvement. And that's a, that's when the foods are given to you, right? Sure. That's assuming, uh, to Kirsten's point, full compliance, you know, you're, you're really doing a good job with restricting these. But we're hoping that that two to three week that time window is is practical and hitting that sweet spot in terms of uh, you know maximal benefit with least restriction to your point, Jen. Mm-hmm. And then okay. reintroduction phase. Reintroduction phase is a little bit tricky because it depends on are you doing the modified, are you doing um, like the full elimination. So that can take. I mean, like Bruno said earlier, it can take weeks just to do introductions again. Ideally, you want to try a food. You want to. Like, see, okay, do I have symptoms from that? If they do have symptoms that are triggered by that particular food, then we always say, like, wait until those symptoms die back down so that you don't get confused mm-hmm. about reintroducing the next food, What, which one caused your symptoms. Um, so that one can can last quite a few weeks as well. Um, I believe in the study that we did, it was, like, four, four mm-hmm. weeks. So um, we don't really have like a designated time yeah. frame for that here at Children's. It just kind of depends on um, on the patient. But uh, yeah, it can definitely last a little bit longer, which I'm not a fan of, but I don't really know how we could change that. Mm-hmm. Right. I know it, it's such a question mark, right? That That's an area that's the next one of the next, you know, areas to really focus on in, in this in this research is, you know, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what really is the best? What, what I think is challenging, too, is like, <laughs> what if finals are right within your introduction? Or what if like state testing is right? Because no. we know <laughs> that point. finals is what I mean, like college finals for our college kids. But like if, if there's stress uh-huh. going on in their environment and they're in the reintroduction phase, I feel like sometimes I'm like, maybe you just hold. Don't reintroduce during this week. Yeah. Or if you do chalk it up to other factors that definitely can influence your IBS symptoms. Yeah, yeah we totally, life makes it challenging. Yeah, life, the real world, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely, 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 hundred percent. And it just makes it just that much more challenging. Yeah, right, when we're educating of, the beginning of the summer, I'm like, yes, I know, whole summer, it's right. the best time to do it. <laughs> and you can say like, oh, you can start it after your family vacation. That's totally yes. fine. Right. And then. Yeah. 
feel like the beginning of the school year starts and everybody's <laughs> not a good time pain. to start the low-fi <laughs> Flares up and everyone's stressed with activities and then holidays are really hard to get buy-in from families to start something, which I get it. I wouldn't want it to alter my family's plans. Um, yeah, that's a, a really tricky aspect of it. And getting the buy-in too from families that there's more than just something medically or nutritionally going on I feel like is really tough I try to mention our psychology friends with every patient I see and encourage that relationship whether it's with our psychologists or you know a counselor local to them as something that can be beneficial so and controlling those that stress related IBS so uh, but it's getting the buy-in I feel like on that piece too that's I mean that's a super real important point through all this. I know we're focusing on on the diet, but again, as we were all kind of alluding to, we live in the real world. And there, this is just one of many sometimes complementary treatments yeah, that you really absolutely. should be doing for the child that you're seeing, whether it be what you mentioned, you know, uh, some counseling or, or other aspects. You, you don't need to just do one thing mm-hmm. necessarily. And I think we all do that in clinical practice, but it's just good a good reminder of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that biopsychosocial model concept where it's like so much more than just one factor contributing to someone's presentation. One thing just to kind of follow up. So, uh, Sabrina, I believe that some of your studies have included evaluation of the uh, gut microbiome. What is the data on that? Like, does it lead to changes and uh, what kind of role do we think that plays in response? It's a, it's a great question, Peter. I think the the jury's still out on it. Mm -hmm. If you Take a look at the studies, both including adult and pediatric studies that have kind of followed adults and kids who have started the low FODMAP diet. The one signal that seems to be out there is that there's a a decrease in bifidobacteria. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I think because of all the inter-individual variation, there aren't that many other signals or changes in composition. And interestingly, most of the studies really say, hey, you're not changing the overall diversity or the you know different types of species that you're seeing. What you do definitely change is what the microbiome is doing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the most consistent uh, thing has been hydrogen production mm-hmm. you know, through the breath testing and others. When you go on a low FODMAP diet, the amount of hydrogen that you are excreting because that's what the bacteria are producing and you're eventually excreting it through, through your breath, that significantly goes down. And so we know we're changing activity. We're right. not changing as much in terms of the uh, what the composition is. I think a lot of interest has actually been on the front end in terms of, well, how do you predict mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. should go on this diet or who shouldn't go on this diet? And the studies have really been mixed um, in terms of the different findings and what seems to jump out. There's a, perhaps a general consensus that if your gut microbiome is more, quote unquote, sacrolytic. So that means that if you have bacteria that are more likely to, and to be able to break down different carbohydrates easily, that you may be somebody who, who could benefit from it. But again, we're still not quite there yet. It's been one of my frustrations is I wish we could get there already because yeah. it's not the easiest diet in the world. So it'd be right. nice to be able to have some type of biomarker mm-hmm. or some type of test or something that can really help us know who should who should start it. Yeah. Right. I think we know too that getting those samples from patients is not easy. We have tried. <laughs> so we need to know your secrets on getting kiddos oh, to yeah. sign up for something like that. Yeah, no, happy, happy to share, <laughs> happy to share. Um, and it, it is challenging. And, and sometimes it, it's, it's difficult when you're trying to do a, a clinical study, how you really want to make it real as practical and real world as possible. 
And sometimes you, it's difficult to get these samples when you're, when you're a little bit more pragmatic as opposed to like, Hey, we're, we're bringing children into these nutrition research centers like mm-hmm. in, in Houston while you're here, you will stool. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's not quite real world, but it does help in terms of some of the rigor. Uh, but it's, there's right. a balance there for sure. Yeah. I think in uh, Kirsten and I's experience, our recruitment dropped from something to nothing <laughs> once we added a <laughs> but i think i think it was like we have to mail it in or i forget what it was there's some difficulty you know, in... or like i have to mail you what exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's talk let's talk we'll share yeah we'll share, exactly yeah, we'll share yeah. what, what, what <laughs> we've been doing ideas like I, capturing i'm not telling data. you there's a hundred percent excitement about this but yeah. um, i mean i, I think <laughs> all the peds gis know how many fecal calprotectins go uncollected so yeah absolutely yeah. So what advice, we'll start with Kirsten, what advice would you give to a dietitian if they want to start using, like if their docs are starting to recommend this diet and they don't have any experience with it? Yeah, um, I think there are a lot of great resources out there. So Monash going straight to the source is a great resource. I know that they have some training on there as well, but they offer great resources on their social media. Um, So I think following them and just kind of getting an idea for what type of stuff they put out. They also have a wonderful app. It's the Monash app. It's wonderful that you can, it literally has a stoplight system where you can search a database of foods that they've tested and it'll tell you like, okay, this is a green or, you know, green to go serving um, or yellow, medium amount of FODMAPs or red. This is high FODMAP. You know, if you have a patient on low FODMAP diet, then hold on those foods. Um, So I think that's really helpful. They've even started to branch out and test some American foods because it, for those who don't know, it's in Australia. So there are some Australian based foods. So, and then uh, Kate Scarlotta is a great resource as well. I've done um, continuing education that she's put out. And I think that's really helpful. So she's an adult dietitian. She is an adult dietitian. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you kind of just take what you learn and you modify that down to your population. So obviously we're not talking about some of the things that she's talking about, like alcohol (laughs) um, with with our patients. But yeah, just taking that and making it more kid friendly. I feel like if you're in the world of peds, then you're there for a reason. You have a passion for it. And so you know how to kind of take that information, digest it, and then like put it out there for kids. So I think that's important. But those are the two main resources that we actually give our own patients to go to because Kate Scarlotta has a great blog with different recipes and stuff, too. And I haven't looked at this, but do you know if the Academy has anything on the low FODMAP diet or if on the Naspigan website there is anything for the low FODMAP diet? I'm actually not sure about Naspigan, um, but I think the Academy has maybe in the nutrition care manual, but I think it's probably more on the adult side. I haven't. Uh, to be completely honest, I haven't checked in a really sure. long time, um, but I think they might have like a brief little write-up mm-hmm. in the care manual, but I think going to Monash or Kate's website yeah. are, are the better resources there. And CPNP has a listserv, so if yeah. someone's getting started and you know wants to throw like, hey, I need some help, I need some resources, yeah. there may be some homegrown resources like the ones that we've made that, that could be helpful for for members too. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we're a friendly bunch. People always, if you send out a question, there are always colleagues that are willing to answer questions. Yeah. Yes, please share. That would be, that would be really helpful. I I think it would really benefit a lot, a lot of folks. And so Bruna, from a physician standpoint, Mm -hmm. you know, so we've, you've already talked a lot about, you know, who's the ideal patient, things to watch out for, but as a physician thinking about incorporating this more into their practice, any other tips in terms of like things you've learned from your experience? It's a, it's a good question. I, I think 
a lot of the way I look at it, and I think I mentioned this before, that this is complementary. Mm-hmm. And so go through what, what you're comfortable with in terms of the workup and the, some of your typical therapies. I usually don't recommend this as a first-line therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you still have somebody who's refractory, at that point, I'd usually recommend them seeing a, a, a registered dietitian just yeah. to you know go through the diet. What are they actually eating? And it gets to some of those ideal situations that we talk. Are they already restricting too much? Uh, um, are there some clear targets that we can go for that may not lead to a lot of restriction? I, I still remember one patient that was having a ton of mint candy. Uh, <laughs> that's a question we know, ask everyone. Yes. Yeah, we ask about oh, sugar-free yes. gums. Yeah. It, it ended up being, you know, very focused, personalized. Yeah. Right? Right. I mean, it sounds Great catch, so, right? It, yeah. It sounds so scientific, but it's like, no, you just need to stop, you know, <laughs> eating all these mints. Um, and it made a huge difference, uh-huh. right? So it, I think we've all had patients like that. So mm. Try not to make this too abstract yeah. for your patients. I think, I think that kind of comes back to some of those nice guidelines. We don't I was just about to say that. We yeah, don't, we don't use the nice guidelines, but I've looked at them and we use several of them. Say, we kind of do yeah, in a way. General, general yeah. recommendations oh, for absolutely. someone who has IBS before you jump to the low fod method. Yeah, absolutely. We have like a what we call like a helping hand for IBS, and it talks about um, so it's like general handout on here's a few things you can try. Mm-hmm. Try lactose free milk if you're a major milk drinker. Try eliminating beans. You know, like <laughs> just a few decrease things. your carbonated beverage. Yeah, decrease carbonated decrease sugar free candy. I feel like mm. a lot of times too, like even. You know, I feel like there's always something we can find that we can tweak about their nutrition um, mm-hmm. or their dietary habits. So going back to the basics for a lot of times for our patients can be really helpful. So even if, you know, they're referred to us for a low FODMAP diet, we might not send them out the doors with um, information for the low FODMAP diet, but we can still help them with going back to we'll basics. We'll be very thoughtful about it. Yeah, yeah. Going back to basics, like, you know, how many fruits and vegetables do you eat? Like, are you getting enough fiber? Do you stay well hydrated? There's so many things that go into, like, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, like our bowel movements and our bowel habits, um, so much more beyond FODMAPs. So I think that there's always something we can do. And it's such a, like, systemic thing, too. Like, again, like, if we try to em- implement changes, you know, a family might not be able to afford those changes or the school systems can't provide foods that work for that child. But I think, you know, are like, where are they getting their foods in general? Are they grocery shopping? Are they cooking at home? Do they know how to cook? We don't, you know, we, we can kind of assess that too. Um, and go from there. Um, I feel like as physicians, you don't have as much time no, to talk yeah. with patients and potentially have as much time. <laughs> we can go into and You're already details. talking about a lot I did, of other I don't stuff. usually ask about about you so many cook? of these like, things. Yeah. It's not a time limitation. Yeah. I was about to say you all are being very kind. I don't ever think because so. it's really this is really it's about expertise. Yeah, it's really right. about expertise. Um, it's not just about time. Yeah, and that's why it's such a good partnership. To, yeah, to institutions exactly. that don't have a lot of nutrition support. I feel you know. I feel like it would be very stifling to suggest some of yeah. these things, and you know, feel like your patients could do them. Well, and with all aspects of that multidisciplinary team. So when you don't have them, if there's any way to find local people that can help you that may not be part of your institution. Yeah. And I feel like, again, like finding someone who knows what they're talking about in the low FODMAP world is really important. Like we Mm -hmm. talked about, like, you know, there's lots of dietitians out there, but I feel really lucky that all four of us GI dietitians here are really knowledgeable and the low FODMAP diet because we can all lean on each other um, to provide those educations. So there's a lot of them. And there's a lot. There's a lot of them. Yeah. (laughs) 
and, uh, and growing, right? It's really become yeah. such a yeah. It's exploded, I guess, over the yeah. last several years, which is which has been great. There, I think there are even some virtual options actually, and at least through the American College of Gastroenterology, I saw being able to work with some uh, dietitians hmm. uh, who are great. very familiar with with this type of diet. So it's it's growing for sure. Um, just to jump on one point that you mentioned that you know there are other things beyond the low FODMAP diet. Mm-hmm. Right. There may be better fits uh, for your patient, mm-hmm. and you know so whether it be fiber supplementation, psyllium, peppermint oil. I love that. It's like don't make it too complicated. You know, still have to remember common sense stuff, and maybe doing this diet, quote unquote, doesn't actually involve you know eliminating all a billion foods. It's just focusing the ones that we think are most likely to help. So um, I also love that you guys have emphasized so much the importance of a partnership between the pediatric GI and the dietitian, just like we're doing now in this Absolutely. little gathering here in this room. Yep, yep. Um, so <laughs> thank you both so much again for coming on. This is such a good discussion. And maybe on a personal note, we want to ask both of you. So over your illustrious careers thus far... Oh my What's goodness. the best? Illustrious. Maybe we'll start with we'll start with Bruno. We'll start with Bruno. Oh <laughs> you no! First this time. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the uh, best advice you've received thus far? And what would you tell our listeners who may be junior faculty or trainees? What do you think? Well, I, I would certainly not characterize my career as being illustrious, but thank you. <laughs> that that's super kind of you. I, I think the best advice I, I received was from Rob Schulman. He said, always work with somebody who's, who's smarter than you. And I think mm. what that usually translates into is find a really good mentor yeah. that is invested in you and can work with you. And why, why is that? You only have a limited amount of time. And there are so many things that are very exciting uh, when you're just getting into a field but when it comes to just learning things from a very practical standpoint, logistically, how do you get a study done? How do you recruit? How do you get fecal samples, right? All these things that, you know, your mentors already done, they can, they can kind of lead you in that direction. And second, since your time is so precious, that mentor can really keep you focused mm-hmm. and accountable in, in, in a way. I've been, I was really fortunate to work with, with Rob Schulman for many years at, at Baylor, just like the mentor's mentor, but uh, that is extremely helpful. So I would really recommend that for junior faculty and fellows. I love it. Kirsten? Okay, I'm kind of going to build on that. So find your interest and your passion and then know your limits. Mm-hmm. So because your time is so precious, like Bruno said, and I'm a big advocate for work-life balance. Jen could probably attest to that. Yep. And I wasn't for a long time. And I think it, that came with having children um, and building a family. So I think knowing your limits, both, you know, inside and outside of work, it can be so easy to get caught up in, yeah, I want to do that project. Yeah, that's really exciting. I love that idea. And then you find yourself overwhelmed and on the verge of like a burnout. So I think really knowing your your limitations as a person, um, because we're all human. So that would be my my big one. Those are great. Mm -hmm. So if we think about this show today in the low FODMAP diet, what do you think are three main points that listeners should take away from this episode? Kristen, first one. Um, the low FODMAP diet is not for everyone. Love it. Yeah. yeah I mean, with, with that is definitely make an assessment, right? Yeah. Of, of the factors of the patient that you're seeing in front of you before you make that, yeah. make the recommendation. I agree. That's point number one. Yeah. yeah that's okay. Great. Two. If you are doing it, the low FODMAP diet g- comes in three phases, and okay. it's really important to to work with a registered dietitian to to help you to help the patient go through that. 
Oh, that was going to be my third point if you looked at me. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I think that really goes hand in hand. Yeah, That's it why does. it's the same. It's All the same. You know, if you're, if you're doing it, it's really, it's, it's important. I like it. Me too. So once again, thank you both so much. That was an awesome episode. I know that our joint audiences are going to yes. love it. We should do this again. Oh, it's totally. very nice. Yeah. Mm. Thank you guys for having us. Yes, and, thank you so and much. Being the inaugural uh, combination. It's, yes. it's it's an honor to do that. Thanks oh, again, guys. You guys yeah, killed thank it. You that was awesome. Thank you to Dr. Tempatazzi and Kirsten Jones for joining us on our inaugural collabo joint episode. Yeah. That was so good. Definitely. Well, if you don't already, please consider following the shows. Yes. We will announce upcoming episodes for the Nutrition Pearls podcast on CPNP social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you are a CPNP member, or I guess if you're an Aspigan member and you have a topic idea for us, feel free to email at cpnp at naspigan.org. And if there's any joint episodes you guys want to hear, yeah. let us know. We have a lot of ideas, but we would always welcome more and from the Bell Sounds side, if you don't follow us already, please do on Twitter and Instagram at, at Bell Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for news updates on upcoming episodes. And if you want to support us, please tell people about the podcast. Please, please leave us a review. And then, uh, you know, you can always also make a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation and support some of the amazing things that NASPGAN and CPMP do uh, to support pediatric GI research and public education. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.